Elon Musk has bought Twitter for approximately $44 billion. He's going to be paying each share of Twitter $54.20. Um, in a statement released by the company, Mr. Musk said, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. Okay, everyone. So we are going through a really interesting part of uh, the history of the internet today. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, what is going on right now with the Twitter apocalypse. We just saw yesterday that Elon has officially announced that he's come to an agreement with the Twitter board uh, to actually purchase Twitter for $44 billion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the history of the internet and talk a little bit about that. And then that will uh, jump us, bring us into the in where we are right now and show us what uh, we can do in the future and what the future might look like and a little bit of what got here uh, got us here in the first place now uh it's been a really interesting last couple of years because we've seen uh, all sorts of things going on where we've had uh, various forms of uh, what some have claimed to have been censorship going on. Um, we've had censorship in various in various forms where we've talked about uh, having different things like uh, shadow banning, having people having their accounts throttled, some accounts just being removed entirely or locked. Um, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Babylon B, a site that publishes exclusively satire material, was blocked by by Twitter because they posted a uh, a they made a post that said that they awarded their fictional uh, Man of the Year award to Rachel Levine, who is currently uh, Biden's top one of Biden's top health uh, secretaries. Or uh, I would have to go look up the official title, but I have a little bit later. Um, and so they went and blocked the Babylon Bee's account. Uh, we can talk about other things about how uh, right before the 2020 election, uh, the story that the was broken by the New York Post about Hunter Biden's broken or lost laptop and the emails that were recovered with the various information about uh, collusion with China and other uh, and other situations, um, how that was a f how that uh, the removal of that article from both Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And, uh, affected the outcome of the 2020 election. We're going to go through all that stuff, but what, what I want to do first is take a step back and get into understanding what the internet is, where it came from, and so that's going to be our primary uh, focus for uh, this this uh, first podcast. Now, we're doing a video, as you can see here. So um, if you're on uh, Spotify, I have this set up with a video feed this time around. Uh, we're going to see how this goes. Everything I've, else I've done has always been without the video, but I wanted to give it a shot just because it's a new feature and it allows you to listen via audio or watch on video. So uh, let me know what you think. I hope you enjoy having the video format. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go back all the way to the 60s, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how the internet came to be. Obviously, what we're doing right now is all facilitated by the internet i am able to now i'm able to basically hook up my my laptop that i can carry around in a bag connect it to this internet that is somewhere out there in the ether and then use the internet to record this video and then put it all together for you and upload it and then it magically shows up on your devices so how does that actually happen and i'm going to try to give you some basic under a basic understanding of how the internet works now i am not a person who knows <laughs> any depth of information about this the only thing i can help you do is understand kind of like a surface level understanding of what certain things did and what they do so we're going to go ahead and we're going to get into this um, and talk about how the internet developed one other thing we're going to talk about is a uh, a situation that occurred in france that uh, was very interesting it uh, basically went from 1978 all the way to 2012 and uh, with their own form of the internet and we're going to talk about how that worked and didn't work and why and how that affects Twitter today. So let's get straight into it. Um, we're talking about the internet. Um, basically, what we're talking about is a, uh, a a system of technology that has evolved since about 1969, but really can have its roots even further back because it really has roots to computing in general and using computers all the way back till uh, back in we had uh, back in like 1945. They were still they were starting to use um, various types of machinery and computers um, to uh, 
uh, for uh, Department of Defense type initiatives. Now, really, the internet itself goes back to a program that was initiated by the uh, United States federal government called ARPA or A R P A. Um, and it eventually turned into a company into uh, what's called DARPA now, D A R P A. And uh, what that stood for originally when it was ARPA was the Advanced Research Projects Agency. Um, it was created with the purpose of, facilita- of facilitating new innovations in technology for defensive purposes. So it was actually created by the Department of Defense, and the Department of Defense was trying to dump a bunch of money into a program that would keep them ahead of uh, the Soviets, in particular at the time. It was created in the 50s, and uh, the annual budget for for the DARPA program, it does kind of uh, ebb and flow, but generally ends up being about $3 billion per year, and the DARPA program is still in existence today. Now, when we talk about the DARPA program, we have to talk about uh, what the other projects, some of the other projects they've been involved with, and some of the successes and failures. Now, um, when I'm talking about DARPA, it's basically, I'm going to explain the basic layout of it. Essentially, it's a flat funding program. So they have very little supervision as far as their funding and stuff like that. Basically, what happens is it gets $3 billion from the uh, from the Department of Defense, and that money is put into a, uh, a system where they have some checks and balances in place, but most of it is fairly uh, flat, and it's given to these governors who then can choose different initiatives to put the money in. So they'll go and they'll find a a, a particular scientific project and see whether they think it it might in the future benefit uh, the Department of Defense, and then they say, well, we're going to fund it, and we're going to put a bunch of money into this, and then you have to come out and make uh, make this work. And uh, the thing about the DARPA program is that it's designed to take a lot of risky bets. And so essentially when they put all this money in, the goal is to have big wins and then every now and then there's a big loss. And it's just kind of the ebb and flow of how this works. So big wins that have happened over the last like 50 years or 70 years really since this program has been around um, are things that we use every day. So if you get in your car and you use your phone and you use your GPS to navigate from one place to the other, you're using a program that originally was designed by scientists who had funding from ARPA or DARPA as it is now known. Uh, You also are using automated voice recognition when you use Siri on your phone. Or for me, I have a Google phone, so I use, uh, uh, use the Google version of that. And um, so when you're using any type of automated voice recognition technology, that also comes from funding with the DARPA program. And then personal electronics in them themselves, your phone, your iPhone, your Google Pixel, your Samsung phone, any of those phones, those personal devices, they all can be traced back to a route that was from Department of Defense funding. And guess what? The reason why these the government was interested in all these things was because they wanted to build different devices that would benefit the U.S. military, and it was designed to keep us a couple steps ahead of the Soviets and of the Chinese and the other enemies that we might come across in the future. So it was a method of taking and using freedom to combat the uh, the collectivist and socialist methods of these other countries that end up stifling creativity. And we're going to talk about how France did the same thing in just a moment. So we had some successful projects, GPS, automated voice recognition, and personal electronics. All of those came from the DARPA program. And so when we are talking about how all this was done, we really have to consider the uh, we really have to consider uh, how this affected the uh, future of the internet. Now, um, I apologize if I'm clicking around on here a little bit. I'm still getting used to the new platform. <laughs> but as we're um, getting into talking more about the the start of the internet, we had to kind of lay the foundation for DARPA. So the internet was designed to solve a problem by for the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense wanted to create a near instantaneous communication form that would link mobile u- military uni- u- units with their headquarters so that they could communicate and gather information and intel from these mobile units anywhere. Now, here's the thing. 
after World War II and in the 50s during the Cold War, there was no such technology. Um, in fact, in some cases, even in World War II, uh, Soviets and uh, were not were not even proficient with radios. It wasn't it was not a thing that they were funding enough. And there was cases where the radios were not provided to uh, various tank commanders and stuff like that. And so the world was still a very different place. There were, the internet was not even close to being a thing. It was very much a foreign idea, but. Through investment by the DARPA program, by the late 60s, we started to get closer to a system that would literally change the world. In 1969, the, uh, a, the Department of Defense came out with a program that was called ARPANET, being that this was still before uh, DARPA, or ARPA became DARPA. <laughs> so it was called ARPANET. And uh, ARPANET was basically a connected but not mobile uh, internet. It connected various nodes within a link, and uh, it was successful in the ability to actually send messages, but it wasn't mobile. You had huge computers that took up giant rooms, had to be temperature controlled, and they had to make sure that everything was done just perfectly and they were not able to relocate things. So while it applied to university uh, universities and other type of uh, of institutions that are not mobile, they have computer rooms that can be there, and uh, you don't have to disassemble everything to move it to another place like you would if you were uh, in a military circumstance where you had to be mobile. It wasn't mobile, it required hard connections, and they were huge and fragile computers. Um, the first transmission that occurred that could be connected to the ARPANET being that it what would become the internet was uh, occurred on October 29th in 1969 um, and the connection was between Stanford and UCLA. ARPA, uh, the ARPANET was the first type of system that allowed for a technology called package switching. And it was originally, package switching as a, as a design was originally put together by a guy named Paul Baran. And uh, he was a Polish-American scientist who had uh, funding through the DARPA program. And basically what that does when you're talking about package switching is that it just has uh, each piece of information has a header and then a payload. And so it basically has an identifier tag. Think about a bag that has a tag on it, and then it has the actual contents of the bag. And then that is being sent through uh, these various transmissions over the internet or what would become the internet. The problem, like I mentioned, is that everything was done over wires. So they had to have physical connections uh, to, uh, to do everything through these nodes. But we needed wireless connections. And so this led to the success of this project led to the next phase called internet working. Now this is the thing that we're going to see commonly as we look through the next couple of steps of the development of the internet. Uh, and it really all comes back to this simple truth. And, and that is that the genesis of all creativity and innovation starts with solving a single problem. We look at the problem, we say, well, we need to be able to connect this computer to this computer. Okay, let's figure out how to do that. And then we say, okay, well, we figured out how to connect this computer to this computer. Um, that we'll talk in a little bit more about what that actually looked like. <laughs> and, uh, and now we need to figure out how to connect this computer to another computer that's mobile, that's not in the same place, and we can't connect it with just wires. We need to figure out how to do this wirelessly. So um, that is a process that is the, the soul of innovation and creativity. And so we're going to dig deeper into understanding what that actually looks like. And that way we can really get a better idea of how the Internet came to be. So now we get into 1977. So now that we have wireless communication, at least a rudimentary form of it, uh, over in 1977, the first PC modem was created by Dennis Hayes and Dale Hetherington. Now, basically what a modem does is it connects information. So it connects, it manages the routing of information. And so it takes place, it uh, makes the information can go to the proper places and helps you to uh, send your signal as you uh, where you want it to go. So the 1977 uh, was the release of the first modem. 
1979 came the bulletin board system. Now, this is actually something that I'm going to do a later podcast with my dad about. Uh, he actually, back in the late 70s, mid-80s, was working with these systems. And uh, and so he actually is familiar with the using the bulletin board system. But essentially what it was, was it was a accessible board that you could use, that you could, that you could get to through using a program called Terminal on your devices. Now, it's the Terminal program is still very used today by programmers and other people who uh, who dig a little bit deeper into their devices. Uh, you, you can find it on Windows. There's a Windows terminal. And then there's a, a different command line that's used for Mac computers as well. Um, but basically what it was is you'd access the bulletin board through your terminal program on your computer, and then you could it allowed you to leave notes for that other people could then log into that same bulletin board and access. It was kind of like a central point for exchanging information, and it was able to be do, done remotely. It was not real-time or anything like that. It just allowed you to get on there, save it, and then somebody else could get on, and then they happen to check it, then they would be able to see what you left there. Kind of like uh, if you were walking down a path and you just kind of scratched a mark in a tree, it gives somebody, the next person who walks down that same path the ability to recognize that symbol and say, turn here, don't turn here, whatnot. So that was the beginning of the bulletin board system in 1979, and it also connected with a new system called Usenet, which is actually, I was doing some research about this earlier today, is a system that's still used today. Usenet is basically another method of using the internet that's kind of died off because it was less accessible than what we currently use as the ARPANET, uh, as the ARPANET iterative version. So we are uh, what we use right now is basically what's based off of ARPANET, like I mentioned earlier, and that was formed in 1969. Usenet was kind of another branch off of this. Uh, with Usenet, you were able to use Usenet type uh, programs to access uh, various information sharing sources, similar to Bolton, but essentially other users would get up and upload uh, files to the Usenet network, and then you could go and you could grab those files and download them and then use Usenet based uh, de- uh, use Usenet based computer programs to open those those files and to read them and then re-upload your own stuff. And apparently it's still very active. There's a, a recorded as I was looking at it, about uh, 30 trillion terabytes of information, which is a lot of information that has been uploaded uh, over the years. Now, you can't access it all at once. They have a bunch of different ways that the internet works there. So, um, But it's almost, in effect, kind of a, uh, a, 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 a primitive cloud interface. And so when we think about that, uh, it's a really interesting thing that we were able to start using that type of technology all the way back in 1979. The next thing that occurred was, uh, I'm actually going to take you to France. And that was in 1978. From 1978 to 1982, why I mentioned earlier, a program or a system called the Minitel was created. Now, the uh, the Minitel was a government-based uh, program or a computing system that was designed to be an intranet for France so that France could effectively develop their own technology and stay ahead of the rest of the world. That was the original idea. And in order to do this, they actually took the information and the uh, the tech, the design from the CCLOD, which was a uh, a fund a privately funded uh, program that I mentioned earlier that started in 1972, and they basically took it into government ownership and then subsidized it through federal funding with taxpayer money. And the Minitel was useful when it was at its prime for uh, doing various things like banking, travel reservations, weather, university apps, stock prices, and uh, news. And and also, it's also been noted, I, I, I found this on various different places, it's been noted as one of the first places uh, available online where they, could, where they had uh, sex chat lines. So it was one of the very first places where uh, they had all of this whole different world of internet that was accessible. And uh, essentially, Essentially, what happened was that because it was funded by the government, it was funded very well from 1978 to 1982, but then it was controlled by a government agency that was designed specifically to control the information uh, and to, uh, to control the various different uh, aspects of that system. And so it wasn't a free and open internet. And because of that, the innovation effectively stopped after 1982. Um, at its peak, had 9 million devices installed. In fact, because it was subsidized by the federal, uh, by the, by the, the, well, the government of France, even if you were poor, 
you could have a Minitel system installed in your home. And so the government would pay and have those uh, those systems installed because they wanted to, uh, it was their method of trying to stay ahead of the rest of the world. There was 9 million devices installed, an estimated 25 million users at its peak, and 26,000 different services that were available to be used on these very primitive systems that basically all that they had on them was basically white text uh, or text on a, on a white screen. And so it would pop up, you could go on through, and you could use the various menus to do various actions that I mentioned earlier. Um, Benjamin Bayart, who was the, the head of France's oldest internet service provider, uh, said that, quote, nothing new could ever happen, and effectively that the innovation stopped after 1982 uh, because the government had so much control over it. It wasn't a free and open system. Eventually, the Minitel network was shuttered in, on June 30th of 2012, after 30 years of, uh, of use, or just over a little bit, 30 years of use. So that's what happens when an internet system is not able to to innovate and to continue to grow. It dies. And that's something we're going to talk about with the modern social media networks, what's going on with uh, social media networks and various other big, huge companies that we're dealing with, like Apple, Google, and so on. And uh, how that's the the one party control of these platforms, it has really become a problem in the last few years, but that's all changing. So in 1984, right after the Minitel system uh, was uh, was created and started being implemented in France, uh, we had the first breakthrough which created what's called DNS, which is Domain Name Systems, and it created registries for domain names. Now, if I go to, I'm going to use Google as an example, Google.com, Google.com is, dom- is a domain name. It's not necessarily what's called an IP address, which is an actual code for a computer, 192.whatever. Um, and it has a actual IP address. So the Google is kind of shorthand that reconnects to me to an actual computer number, and it takes me to that IP address. And so that was when the first DNS were created was in 1984. In 1985, we had the Well community that was first the the first virtual community that was created on the internet. The Well was is still active today and is the oldest one around. And essentially, what it is, it works similar to um, any other type of. Uh, it, it's kind of like the first social network, but it was more on like a forms based uh, setup. So anything similar to I'm, I'm thinking about uh, some different. Uh, different social sites, but particularly Reddit. Uh, Reddit is kind of a modern version of what the well was, where it's just a public forum. People can go on there and communicate. And so the well was the first virtual online community that's still active today. The same year, in 1985, what was a program called the PlayNet was first created, and it was essentially a uh, the first types of accessible, uh, it, what would eventually become the open internet and uh, internet service providers. We'll talk more about that in just a second. In 1988, we had the Internet Relay Chat, which was created, which for which allowed real-time messaging for the first time. And so it was the first time that we were able to do something like Facebook Messenger. You type in a message, send it, it pops up on somebody else's screen. It, that was the first time we were able to do that was in 1988. In 1989, uh, AOL started to come to prominence, and this is where the PlayNet software came into to, uh, the system. So PlayNet even was started a couple years prior, and essentially what it was was it was a dial-up service that uh, connected uh, various computers over a dial-up connection. And so you would have to go and you'd enter a, a phone number, and then it would con- connect to that phone number, and then you could route that number to various places that way. By uh, the time AOL was created, it was cre- it was AOL actually stands for American Online, and the point was it was they were tra- aiming to become a new type of internet service provider. But uh, there was another company that beat them to the punch, and uh, there was a war about over this in the the mid nineties, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Um, by nineteen ninety. We had the World Wide Web, which was officially termed that by a guy named Tim Berners-Lee, who uh, used the first t- the iterations of uh, HTML, which is hypertext markup language, which is the, the primary language that's used for writing uh, writing internet web pages. So we use HTML it's a, uh, to create web pages. And then he used hypertext transfer protocol, which is HTTP. So if you ever go to a website and you look up at the navigation bar, it'll say something like HTTPS 
colon or semicolon uh, slash slash um, no colon yeah colon slash slash um, the HTTPS protocol stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol and it's a iteration uh, of of how it's basically the method of how we re, we call uh, various domain names so it uses HTTPS protocol to access different websites. Um, and then we have URLs, which is uh, a form it's connected to the domain names. And so uh, URLs is a uniform resource, resource locator. So you type in a URL, google.com, and it connects to a DNS, which connects to, which gives you the HTML for that page. That's a rough understanding of it. There's a lot more detail, I'm sure. <laughs> but that's a rough understanding of how that stuff works. And Tim Berners-Lee was the first one who actually put it into practice in 1991, and he created the first web page. And there's actually a link uh, where you can actually go and see that first web page, but it's been updated since the very first time it was around. So it's not exactly what it was. But uh, essentially, what it, it, it was the first created web page where anybody who had internet access was able to go to a common website and he actually used it as a list to tell you more about how to use the internet so it was a list where you get on there and it has further links to tell you more about how to use the internet and how to do other operations and in that same year uh, 1991 or i'm sorry 1990 uh, the first commercial isp or internet service provider became uh, it w was created by a company called CompuServe. Now, CompuServe had been around actually since 1969, and it originally started off as a company where they would rent time to use their computers. So they owned a bunch of computers, and uh, different comp and different companies or people would rent time to use the computers, and so they could get a chance to work on them for various purposes. The uh, after that through the 70s they evolved into a new type of company where they became more software based they wanted to be able to sell their software instead of renting time to use their computers they used their computers to create software and then they wanted to sell that software to other companies and individuals who wanted to use that software so they started creating their own software the problem was is that they didn't they had to create a method for people to be able to get their software who weren't all who weren't able to be given a hard copy so what they did was they created the first types of dial-up systems that uh, AOL eventually started to emulate about halfway through the 80s uh, using the PlayNet software. And so with the dial-up systems, uh, they became a service provider for that. But 1991 was the first time when they were actually uh, became an internet, an actual internet service provider where it wasn't using a dial-up system. They were actually uh, using HTML, HTTP, and connecting everything together so that it was a worldwide network versus a uh, network that was just within their system. In the early 80s, what would happen is you'd log into the CompuServe database, and then you could access data, uh, CompuServe programs and download those, but it's not like you could have them route you to another place. That's what happened later on. It was you were able to connect to CompuServe and then have CompuServe send you to wherever you wanted to be, and that's when they became an internet service provider. They were able to connect you to various places, and that became uh, part of it in 1991. Now, there's a whole history about uh, the competition that happened between AOL and, and CompuServe, but essentially, they became some of the first two uh, internet service providers, and they used to charge by time. So I'm going to spend an hour on the internet. That's going to cost me $10 or whatever. And uh, so they started undercutting each other and uh, they had a, a big competition um, back in the 90s over who would be the main uh, the main internet service provider. Now, there's many of them all over the oh, oh, all over the place now. We have, you know, Verizon, AT&T are both internet service providers. In fact, um, uh, Verizon has connections to AOL now because they've been purchased and uh, various other transactions have occurred uh, after uh, various different uh, takeovers over the years. So th that was where the internet first became worldwide. They had internet connections where you could connect to anything you wanted to through these service providers who would give you access. There would be gateways to all this information. 1991, the MP3 became standard as a, uh, as a method of transferring files. And the first network uh, was also created to use a webcam. So Cambridge University created a webcam just like the way I'm talking to you now. And the camera's job was to watch the coffee pot.
The whole idea was that they created this overly compl complicated system to watch the coffee pot to save them trips to an empty coffee pot. The coffee pot. They wanted to know if it was empty before they got up to go and check. And I'm not sure if they just like couldn't like make coffee for themselves or or what. But I guess they didn't want to waste the time of going to check. They'd rather know how much time am I committing before I go to the coffee pot. Now I don't know how far it was away from their offices, but it seems like they made it a little bit more complex than it needed to be, but still kind of cool. And it led to the technology that I'm using right now to talk to you. In 1993, we had the first graphical web browser. So uh, all the web browsing up until this point that had been done was all through various forms of like terminal communication where you are literally, it's just text on a, on a screen. There's no images or, or more than that. And, uh, and so what we have with what was called Mosaic, which is the first internet browser that, you, that did graphical rep representations, was Mosaic was able to go to websites and then show you an HTML formatted file that uh, allows you to see what you're looking at. So if you're looking at the screen and you're watching me now, everything you're looking at if you're on a website is created, uh, is, is graphical. It shows you images, it shows you pictures, it shows you colors and textures and other things like that. And so Mosaic was the first program that was able to actually uh, translate that information and put it on a screen uh, and do colors and that sort of thing. 1995 was a big year. Um, 1995 created honestly the biggest boom in our economy that has ever occurred, and probably uh, it's really one of those things that that will probably never be done again. And it was the creation of what's called the secure socket layer. Uh, secure socket layer is an encryption technology that allows financial transactions to take place online. So now, if any of you know, right, we get on, uh, we do internet tr transactions all the time. I mean, primarily my money is located online. I don't carry it around in my pocket. Excuse me. And and so the internet with the secure socket layer technology allowed us to securely do transactions financially online and it enabled the companies uh, a company called Echo Bay to begin its operations. Now Echo Bay would later on become a company that I'm sure you've heard of called eBay. And it was one of the very first companies to be online that did transactions online. And, uh, and then it eventually evolved into the site that we have today with many, many millions of users. The other place is a website you've probably not heard of. And it was called Relentless.com. And if you go there, you type in Relentless.com, it'll forward you to a place you have heard of called Amazon. Amazon.com was founded uh, around the same time in 1995-1994 and uh, the secure socket layer enabled them to do their financial transactions online when they were first uh, creating their system. It also created uh, the ability to use different types of technology called GeoCities, which was a web hosting service that, uh, that eventually was acquired by Yahoo in 1999. And GeoCities was basically the first, think of uh, companies like Wix or Squarespace or uh, other companies, uh, or really you could think about other types of uh, programs that use WordPress uh, software to create websites. They were the first type of system that allowed users to get on and use their platform to create a website with greater ease and then publish it. So it was uh, it basically enabled people to uh, act to create whatever site they wanted and then put it in their own in the GeoCities list of websites and then people could go through the GeoCities lists and go and visit these websites that had been created by other users. It was the first system that allowed people to do that in such an easy form. And lastly, in 1995, although there was many things I'm sure that are going on in the background here, the creation of JavaScript became uh, a primary use. So JavaScript is a, a type of coding language that allows for graphical manipulation. So for instance, when I, uh, if you get on the website and it is doing a, and you're looking at a website and it has stuff that moves on the page automatically as you scroll around, that's probably being done with JavaScript or uh, a variation of a modern variation of it. JavaScript was also what for uh, a long time was used to uh, play videos online and things like that. Since then, it's become a little bit less popular or much less popular because it became less secure over time. But it was an early technology that allowed for that type of, uh, that type of, uh, of use. So JavaScript was also created in that year. 
1996 was the uh, was when Hotmail was first made. 1997 was the first time the term weblog was used, uh, and it turned into various other websites that are now blogs. That's what they stand for: is blog, uh, web blog. That's what that where that first originated from was in 1997. 1998 was the first major news story that was primarily broken online first, and I'll I'll give you a guess what the guess what that story was. Nope, you got it wrong. It was the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. So uh, that was the first story that was broken primarily online before it hit major new- news networks on the page. And so that was a, uh, a a story that was major across the United States, and it was part of that. Uh, and part of what made it travel so quickly was the new internet that was allowed everybody to have instant communication from various news networks that spread that story. It also was the year of Google and Napster. So Google was created in 1998 or first became popular and started being used in 1988. And Napster, which has a uh, checkered past that uh, that uh, was much less short, much shorter lived than Google, um, but they both were founded in 1998. 1999, we had a new type of system called SETI at home, S-E-T-I at home. And uh, what it was was a uh, a first type of uh, an early type of supercomputer networking system. So nowadays, when we talk about cloud systems or if we talk about uh, mining systems for for uh, crypto coins, so mining systems connect a bunch of different computers together and then use them all together to uh, to work in unison to create a bigger, uh, more co- more computing capacity than an individual device would have. And that was the first time that that type of technology was being utilized was in 1999. And, uh, and it's still being used all around the world today as a uh, mining for both mining and other purposes. In 2000, we had the dot-com crash. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of various tech companies were uh, that weren't as, uh, as established crashed at that time and and fell apart but it was quickly uh resolved in 2001 and uh the the world started to turn around and 2001 wikipedia was founded and we're almost done with the list here 2003 the first voice over internet protocol or voip was uh started and used by skype skype being created uh, as a program allowed for people to do the video calls and systems that we now rely on so much back in 2003 was the first time that that program came into use and it was the first voice over internet pro- protocol uh, type of technology myspace also became a thing in 2003 in 2004 I wanted to really mention this because this is where a turning point occurs. We introduced what's called what they call Web 2.0. Web 2.0 was more of an initiative than it was a technology, but Web 2.0 was basically a turning point in which we started to view the internet as a platform. So the the Minitel system failed because in France it was choked off by the government that had to have control over it. Web 2.0 was a the opposite. It was the idea that this system is not controlled by any one person. It had grown to the point where now anybody who wants to can create a web page and they can put it on the internet and have publicly traded information. It's a, a new free exchange of information that is that could be limitless in its application. And so this type of internet as a platform philosophy was one of the things that made the internet that we use today work and although it was codified in web in 2004 i'd say it had really been effective for much longer than that 2004 was also the year that uh the facebook it was actually called the facebook uh was created and it was first open to college students and uh lots of interesting stories about this i might do an individual podcast on this at some point but when the facebook was created it was actually originally designed to be literally a facebook it was kind of an online uh like graduation book if you would if you will it, you basically would get on there and you could find other people who are going to your same college <laughs> it was designed to be uh in a closed system like that and it eventually became the multi-billion dollar huge uh, social network that we use today 2005 was YouTube, 2007 was Hulu, and it was also the year of the iPhone, which 
as we talked about with devices, uh, personal devices were originally the ideas and the the basic inf- uh, infrastructure to build those systems were put into place by uh, back with ARPA way back in the 60s and 70s as they were developing that technology. But the iPhone was the one who changed the interface, uh, changed the world uh, as a uh, with technology that hadn't ever been used and made so convenient before. In 2008, we had our first internet election. And uh, in 2008, it's really interesting, Hillary ran the first video ads. So it it really kind of puts everything in perspective. She's been at this a long time. Um, But 2008, I I really honestly, I mean, I I think about 2008, and it it seems like it's it's been a, it's been, well, I mean, it's been both a long time, but also, I mean, 14 years, if you're thinking about 14 years, where we are today with the internet, watching videos online is nothing unusual. You know, like you can see here, 2005 was YouTube, 2007 was Hulu. Uh, Hillary started utilizing the system as one of the first politicians to do so. Um, the problem was in 2008, Ron Paul also smashed all sorts of fundraising records using online advertising in that same year. And so Ron Paul himself, uh, he broke a, he set a record where he raised $4.3 million in campaign contributions in one day. And just weeks later, he broke his own record and raised $4.4 million in one day. That was what the internet election opened up, a whole other resource for spreading uh, political information and gathering uh, campaign funds. So 2008 was the first year where that really became effective. 2009, and this is where we're going to end our current history, is that the U.S. government relaxed control of the of domain names? Um, there was there's actually uh, a a law that was passed that basically took the government uh, control of domain names that we mentioned earlier had been around since the mid '80s, and it relaxed control of uh, who was able to control, create, and control and name uh, different websites, domain name servers, and stuff like that. So this is what led us to our current current point in time. Uh, we have a, a, a system that was created out of what was originally a def- Department of Defense initiative and then grew from there into all sorts of different ways in our lives where now it becomes a uncontrolled uh, or mostly uncontrolled system that is used for the the spreading of information and the spreading of ideas and for mutual innovation that came out of the freedom to innovate. It was not hampered by a government agency who had to control the information. The problem was what we've seen in the last few years is something very odd take place. Now that we have all these huge companies that were created out of the uh, dot-com uh, the got the dot com boom, right? <laughs> we have these companies like uh, Google, YouTube, which is the same thing now because Google bought YouTube a couple of years ago. Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Amazon Web Service, uh, at Web Surface Services, <laughs> Amazon Web Services. Um, all of these companies that control a lot of the huge parts of the internet. In fact, Amazon Web Services actually accounts for 31% of the cloud computing market in worldwide. So when we're talking about cloud computing, we're talking about they own database systems that your websites that you visit are held on. So when I create a website, if it's supported and, and managed by Amazon Web Services, I create a website, I put it, I, I get I get it registered, I get the domain name and all that registered. The I'm not actually hosting the computer, the, the the website from my computer because if I got a bunch of traffic coming in, uh, thousands of computers coming to my website at once, it would destroy my computer because my computer couldn't handle it. Plus, there's times where my computer is turned off. With the Amazon system, what happens is you put all of your information into this cloud-based system, and then when you go to that website, their system is always operating and has a lot of uptime, and then it also has significantly more power than my little personal laptop does, and so it's able to handle thousands and thousands of people working on the same system at once. And so the Amazon Web Services system controls nearly a third of that entire worldwide market and of all of these uh, various websites, they power uh, the websites that control. Uh, they they power Facebook and they power 
Netflix and they power other huge companies that are um, they're based off of their systems and rely on the Amazon Web Services platform to exist. They had $40 billion in revenue in just 2020. And that's also a, a, a $23 billion improvement since 2017. So it's a, a rapidly growing uh, a rapidly growing program for Amazon. Now, here's the thing that we've run into. I mentioned that the, the government hasn't gotten in the way of the growth of the internet, but the problem is that now we have these huge tech giants that control everything. And so they are now the gatekeepers that the government uh, is not. So they are able to control things. So uh, big tech has started to become corrupt over time. As we've seen, uh, we saw this in 2020. I'm just going to list a couple of things that happened. In 2020, uh, Parler was shut down by Amazon Web Services. So um, after the uh, January 6th deal that happened at in Washington, D.C., uh, Amazon blamed, or well, uh, Apple and Facebook blamed Parler, along with Amazon, for uh, using their platform being used to create this uh this these riots now here's the thing that's really interesting is that even a uh, a leftist media center called media matters uh their president and ceo uh angel carusone i'm gonna say it carusone carusone he probably italian um uh with his he's the president and ceo he was quoted as saying this quote if you took parlor out of the equation you would still almost certainly have had what happened at the capitol he told uh salon magazine in this case if you took Facebook out of the equation before that, you would not. To me, when Apple and Google sent their letter to Parler, I was a little bit confused why Facebook didn't get one. So, for example, so what happened was uh, Amazon Web Services compiled. Uh, it was about ninety different complaints about different uh, comments that were on Parler's free speech platform uh, that appeared to be uh, some. Some of them appeared to be uh, either it, it related to the the uh, January sixth riot, or uh, it had something to do with some other thing that Amazon Web Services deemed incorrect, and they set a. 24, I think it was a 24, it might have been a 48-hour deadline, probably had to either remove those stuff or Amazon Web Services would take their website down. And uh, this, was a this was a cooperative attack done by both Apple and Google as well. So Apple and Google both took Parler, the app, off of their app stores. And Amazon Web Services said, if you don't remove this information, and then we're going to take your website down. And they did. They took the website down, and Parler had to rebuild using a whole other internet service provider um, and using a whole different uh, cloud platform to host all of their services. They had to create their own servers. And uh, that was something that happened in 2020 because big tech didn't like what they had done. But just right here in this quote, this is by a leftist publication, Media Matters. They said that Parler probably didn't actually really have that big of an impact either way. The amount of information that was published on, public, uh, on Parler was insignificant compared to Facebook. And Facebook, even though it's hosted by Amazon Web Services as well, did not get any sort of uh, cease and desist letter or be threatened to be pulled down by Amazon Web Services. So we can see there's clear collusion in this matter um, and, and clear favoritism between platforms as well. These companies decided they didn't like a free speech, free speech platform, and so they attacked it. Um, additionally, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook all throttled the Hunter Biden laptop story that became uh, that was released in November of 2020. So, uh, just before the election, the the New York Post released a bombshell article that was about a laptop that Hunter Biden had left at a computer repair store, and the information that had been recovered off of it after he left it there, and the owner saw interesting information on it and then turned it over to federal authorities. Um, the story was at the time taken down by Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter all at once and throttled and taken down from their platforms. And in fact, the New York Post as a whole was being, uh, was being uh, punished by these platforms for publishing such a story that could hurt Joe Biden's chances in the election. And so by this time, when uh, by this time, as all this was being published, they were all colluding once again to tap down on what was allowed to be shared. The uh, the, the it's nice to say that just in the last month or so. The existence of the laptop 
that was originally said by CNN, MSNBC, NBC, a bunch of other major news outlets to be uh, Russian misinformation, uh, is actually has been uh, by the New York Times been confirmed that it actually exists, and the information that is on that has been uh, been leaking slowly and slowly uh, about various different things. Some of the information that was contained on that uh, in that computer in the email systems uh, from Hunter Biden in particular has been of uh, typical major concern. Uh, some of the emails that have been recovered from that computer that was uh, that was that was the source of all this information uh, shows some questionable financial dealings between the Chinese, Russian, and Ukrainian connections to uh, to both Hunter and Jim Biden, who is uh, Joe's uh, brother. And so what we're looking at here is we're looking at a couple of emails, one in particular that says uh, that mentions that there'll be 10% equity for the big guy in a joint venture with a Chinese energy company. This was around uh, this was around 2017 uh, that they also had another email that talks about uh, that shows that there was six million dollars paid to Hunter and Jim Biden by an energy company out of China. Uh, that was reportedly for work during during that was done during Joe's vice presidency. This is all stuff that was contained on this laptop when they started digging into it. Uh, it it's really amazing that all this stuff has been suppressed. It was suppressed so hard by uh, these media outlets. Now the thing is, is that in these social networks. The thing is, is that they actually did a uh, a, a poll about this, and uh, it was by MRC, which is uh, the um, oh, I'd have to go and look at what uh, what that means again. I don't remember, but it was by what you what's called the MRC, and the poll showed that 16% of people who voted for Biden wouldn't have if they had known of the laptop discovery. This is, uh, and I'm going to do quick research on this, just real quick. I want to make sure I, I got this right. The MRC, uh, I want to get the, it's the MRC Watchdog, the Media Research Center. I should know that. <laughs> the Media Research Center, if you go and look it up, they have a poll that showed that after they revealed what was found in the emails uh, on Hunter Biden's laptop, that 16% of people who reportedly said they voted for Joe wouldn't have if they had known about the existence of a laptop. Additionally, we can look at other information that has been filed within the United States Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs in cooperation with the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance Majority Staff uh, in the Majority Finance Majority Staff Report. Lots of word salad. Um, according to the documents that uh, that I've obtained from them, uh, it's available publicly online. On April 16th, 2014, Vice President Biden met with his son's business partner, Devin Archer, at the White House. Five days later, Vice President Biden visited Ukraine, and he soon after was described in the press as the, quote, public face of the administration's handling of Ukraine. The day after his visit on April 22nd, Archer joins the board of Burisma, which was a, uh, a Ukrainian energy company. Six days later, on April 28th, British officials seized $23 million from the London bank accounts of Burisma's owner. Uh, his name was Mikola Zlovskeski, is my guess. Fourteen days later, on May 12th, Hunter Biden joined the board of Burisma, and over the course of the next several years, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer were paid millions of dollars from a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch for their participation on the board. That's literally a, a direct quote out of the document from the United States Committee on Homeland Security. Uh, all of this was uh, was buried by these companies, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, and it's it's insane to think about the amount of influence these companies have gathered, being that they are so big and they control so much of our internet as we use it today. Uh, same same around the same time in January 2021, Twitter removed pre uh, former President Trump right after the election. They removed him and banned him from the platform apparently for life. We'll see what happens now that uh, Elon owns the company. And then Twitter just a few weeks ago removed the Babylon Bee. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, uh, they published an article that said that uh, Rach that they gave Rachel Levine, who is a uh, a, a man who uh, is a former pediatrician but is now employed as the u.s assistant secretary for health by the biden administration and uh, he is a transgender whatever 
And uh, the Babylon Bee published an article that said they gave him the uh, the fictitious award of Man of the Year. Uh, Twitter decided to take down the Babylon Bee account and lock it so that they could not post any more stuff and then held it for ransom and said that you cannot post anything more on your Twitter account until that post is removed. And it's been that way for weeks now, um, uh, prob- well over a month now. And so the Babylon Bee does not have access to their own Twitter account because Twitter officials came in and blocked them and locked down their accounts uh, after posting something that I think is uh, a matter of opinion, but also biologically true, which I guess you could debate on whether that is a matter of opinion. So uh, the, that has all occurred while they've also been facilitating uh, the opposite side, the other side, to, uh, to poke things and say things that are just as offensive um, and with no consequence. For example, the, at the same, around the same time, The Onion released an article that called Senator Hawley of, uh, of Missouri a pedophile, um, but nothing happened to The Onion. The Onion is still able to access and use their Twitter accounts at their leisure. So we see this like divide that's been created by these big tech companies that uh, re- that if you even look at the polling uh, are are well over ninety percent uh, Democrat controlled. So uh, if you looked at Twitter, there was a poll in twenty eighteen that showed that uh, that ninety over ninety eight percent of employees at Twitter voted Democratic, and and so you had these companies that are so blue that it's, they are now starting to create these own their own bubbles and use their power to uh, crush their opponents and to tap down information that they don't want spread and so what is going on now with Elon's new acquisition of Twitter is going to change the way that the internet works and I hope that it opens up the the possibility that the internet will become as free of a place as it was just a few years ago, before these companies were able to take such secure hold on the system. If you look at 2000 to 2010, these all, all these companies were still around, but they didn't have the, the, the controlling interest in the internet nearly as much as they do today. And they were not yet the multi-billion comp- dollar companies that control information and the flow of information in such a uniform fashion as they can control your search results when you get on the internet. They can also change what information shows up in your newsfeed. They can control so many things. And so hopefully with Elon, who is a a free speech absolutist, self-described, hopefully by taking Twitter private, uh, at least one major website for the exchange of communication can be brought into the mainstream. Because the problem was in the past, what we've seen with Parler and with Gab and with other programs that are out there, uh, they claim to be free speech platforms. The problem with them is that they are in their way insular. They're not, they don't have uh, both sides. They're usually right-leaning. And uh, and so when they have these right-leaning companies that have right-leaning users, you just end up with a bunch of right-leaning content and very political content of that. There's not like a, a, a useful platform that allows you just to get on and look at some silly pictures or silly videos about dogs or whatever. Um, so much it is as it is a, a platform that just gives you more of what you already hear all the time and what you may or may not already think. With Twitter, it's unique in that this takeover is taking over a primarily leftist platform, and hopefully what's going to happen in the next few weeks is that we'll see a a universal use application of their terms of service and their Twitter policies that will actually be codified in a clear manner so that there is a clear application and it's less discretionary than it has been in the past. In the past, Twitter could choose, pick and choose, who are we going to block? And we might block the Babylon Bee, but not block the Onion. Or we might do this and not that. And there was nothing that was really codified in their terms of service that says exactly how they go through that decision process. So hopefully what we'll do in the future is we're going to see some actual codified rules about how the how it's going to be applied and how it's going to work. And, uh, and that uh, the Twitter will become the new platform that will enable both sides to coexist in a peaceful manner. 
So that's my hope. Um, I, I will see what happens, but I hope you guys uh, enjoyed going through all this. The uh, the internet is a, is a wondrous place with many, many different things, and uh, the development of it all the way from 1969 to the present has really been a, a roller coaster, but it all comes back to the original idea that small solutions to, sm- to uh, problems over time create big huge innovations and that's just step by step by step these brilliant scientists created new ways to solve these problems and they eventually created the internet through positive collaboration that was unfettered by outside control and so i hope that our internet continues to be free and that it uh, is a platform for everyone thank you guys so much for listening i really appreciate it and i hope you guys have a great rest of your day Oxen's Practical Defense is a company that focuses on defensive education. And when we talk about defensive education, we don't just mean uh, a firearms training or hand-to-hand training or anything like that. What we do in particular is we work on teaching people how to be defensive in various aspects of life, whether that's how to make business decisions, um, whether it's how to protect their church and design their program so it is effective and teaches everyone who is on their security teams how to properly deal with threats and how to be, uh, and, and we work with their insurance companies to make sure that they're properly covered with the right type of coverage and information and all of that stuff. We also uh, work with businesses and other companies to facilitate training and teach courses. Um, I'm really excited about a course that we'll be releasing in the next few months that is designed to be a class about the defensive mindset and about the lifestyle that comes with living a bold life in today's world. So I'll let you guys know more about that as that comes closer. But uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate it and I hope you have a great rest of your day.